everyone. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. And this is Team Get Over It. We're an all-female team participating in the greatest motoring adventure on the planet. The Mongol Rally. We'll be driving 10,000 miles across mountains, deserts, and unknown terrain. And along the way, we hope to spread our feminist and environmental ideals. Join us here as we share our stories, thoughts, and interviews as we get ready for the Mongol Rally 2021. Welcome back. Hello. So our episode today is a little different from what we normally do. Uh, Inspired by our WAP WAP video, (laughs) we decided to ask some of our friends a few questions and have them record their answers for this episode. Hmm. Yeah, so we wanted to hear from different people in different situations what their experiences have been with double standards or gender discrimination. We know that equality isn't the same across borders and industries, so we endeavored to collect as many stories as we could. So we asked our friends to describe their experiences in their workplaces, industries, and love lives, but generally we told them that they could just describe their experiences to us, uh, it should be interesting. And I feel like I'm finally putting my anthropology degree to use. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I suppose we should start with telling our own stories though, right? Yes. So I'll just, I'll just go with my story. Mm -hmm. Um, I have so many stories. I could tell you about the time I was asked in an interview in Canada if I was in a relationship or single. I could also tell you about the time when I was 15 or 16 working at a local gas bar and an older neighbor berated me for not being married or having kids yet. I could also talk about all the times I've been followed by men when I was trying to get home after clubbing. And I could also tell you guys about the time I suspected I was drugged and the man made it all the way into my apartment. But don't worry. Actually, that story has a happy ending. But, so I could say all that, but I'm going to tell you about the time I was working at a pawn shop and an older man wanted to return a Blu-ray player because it didn't work. Now, I know that we test all of our products before we sell them, so I knew that it probably worked. Something about the conversation gave me pause, so I asked the man what kind of TV he had. Turns out, he was trying to hook up a Blu-ray player, which only had an HDMI output, to an old rear projection TV, which only had an AV input. So I tried to explain to him that if he wanted to watch Blu-rays on his old TV, he would either need to upgrade his TV or downgrade the player. He wouldn't listen to me and demanded to speak to a male sales clerk. I was so mad. Like this happened, I don't know, eight years ago, maybe. And I still think about it today. Uh, My coworker literally told him the same So the same thing that I did, but somehow the man accepted the information from him and not from me. So many women have the same experience that I did, not being believed and in more serious situations. Women should be taken at their word and not doubted when what they're saying is perfectly rational, logical, and correct. Gender shouldn't affect the truth. Anyway, yes, I I believe that. (laughs) (laughs) That still makes me really mad. And it's not even that, that like that one time. I'm sure that's happened a lot of different times. It even happened with like other women. So like I remember one time uh, my mom was complaining. We had a family computer and she was complaining about the family computer not running as fast as it used to. And I mean, we got that computer in 2002 and then we had this conversation maybe in like 2000 and 
I think I was still in high school, maybe 2008 or 2009. So the computer was just old. Like that was the issue with the computer. So I said that to my mom and she was, she just wouldn't accept it. She was like, oh no, like it's you, cause you, cause you put so many games on it. I did not put games on the computer. Um, <laughs> and I was like, it's not my fault. The computer's just old. So she asked our neighbor who was a man down the street, the same question, like, why doesn't my computer work well? And he said, oh, because it's old. And she accepted it from him, but she wouldn't accept it from me, her own daughter. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that, I mean, the thing with that is, like, you could, I think, ask any, like, woman in your life if they've had that experience and everyone has. And it's, like, unfortunately so commonplace that you almost don't always realize it's happening mm-hmm. unless you're, like, actively thinking about it, right? Because it just, like, happens and you're like, okay, yeah. Like <laughs> moving on, like nothing new here, which is sad. It's like, it's sad how common that those instances are. Yeah. And I was talking, um, I was talking to my sister recently, uh, who is going to be in this podcast uh, in a little while. Um, there's so many times I think in our daily lives or in our working lives where, like you said, we just sort of accept these instances without really thinking about it because it's so ingrained in our upbringing even Mm. so it's kind of like you know you need to be calm you need to be demure you shouldn't fight so much and just accept other people's opinions and you know sit nicely and stuff even even in you know 2000s it's still like that like I remember my mom telling me things like you know you take pride in your appearance and you know you shouldn't talk back to people and you should be polite at all times and you know kill them with kindness i guess but you know whenever somebody's treating me poorly then i should respond maybe not in kind exactly like don't also treat them poorly but i need to stand up for myself and for mm-hmm. most of my life i was taught not to stand up for myself you know so it's something it's a habit that these days i'm trying to break But I think, yes, the change definitely needs to happen. I think you definitely touched on something when you were saying it's something that, you know, sort of our upbringing ingrains into us. Because I don't know if you've ever seen that video. It's a really powerful video. I forget which company or brand sponsored it. Um, But it basically had girls throughout all ages, you know, sort of ranging, I think, from like five to maybe like early 20s. And they asked the same question, um, which was like, can you show us fighting like a girl? And then can you show us fighting like a boy? Um, And to see like how throughout the years, you know, sort of the idea of fighting like a girl like it starts out where it's like the two are the same. So like the young kids would like, you know, do mock fighting, um, punching the air. And it was, you know, like the same level of energy um, and force put into like fighting like a girl and fighting like a boy because to them it was the same thing. There was no difference. Whereas like you got to the older girls or the older women who were asked the question and and like they were fighting like a boy. And I don't know if it was fighting. It could have been kicking or I don't know. I don't remember. It's been a long time. Um, But when it was like to demonstrate how a boy would do it, you know, they would do sort of what you would typically imagine, you know, like the force and the aggression. But then when it was a girl, it was almost sort of like a joke, like, ah, like small punches and like being all like sort of like, quote unquote, dainty and almost like a joke. So like, like fighting at like a girl became a joke. Um, And it was the video was supposed to demonstrate how that isn't something like that's not an idea that's like inherent 
at a young age that you just sort of know it's actually like ingrained in it culture and society sort of imposes that idea that like girls don't fight girls don't stand up for themselves girls aren't assertive um and that that idea of like fighting like a girl is a joke because girls don't fight yeah and that's totally true and like while you were talking it also reminded me of something uh there was a story from canada recently and i think it's it's some kind of like municipal government office or or something and like it employed a few women and the women were being subjected to just absolutely horrible sexual harassment from their boss and it had like these texts they they in, in the article it showed these screenshots of these texts and the boss is saying something like oh you have to come to this work function with me bra optional ha 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 and you know commenting on her underwear and telling her basically not to wear underwear totally inappropriate and so you know you would think that she responded you would hope that she would respond saying something like that's really inappropriate please stop but she didn't and she so she just kind of made it a joke and laughed it off and you know there's been times in like my life where I've done the exact same thing and I was kind of wondering like why do we do this but you know we don't want to antagonize other people because we're always told like you know you shouldn't you shouldn't make people angry or you should always be kind to them or something. Right. So instead of having these sort of not visceral, but I guess more stronger reactions to this kind of uh, abuse, right. We just sort of laugh it off or we just smile and nod or we turn the other cheek, which really doesn't do much to discourage that kind of behavior. So I feel like, you know, for, for me, like in my life, what I've endeavored to do is, you know, from now on, whenever I'm faced with something like that, I'm going to try to like, think about it (laughs) but I'm going to have a stronger reaction I'm not going to make a joke out of it anymore you know I'm going to tell people to stop and that it's inappropriate I'm going to try I might get punched though and that's something else that I'm really scared of so you know even though I've made this decision and I'm going to try to try to keep to it um, I do recognize that there is some danger involved in that like it's not as safe which I think Anna talks about it later too you know there's always this fear of making somebody angry and them taking their anger out on you kind of in a physical way. It's definitely not safe. (laughs) Mm. Uh, I don't know. It's hard, dude. It is. Yeah. Um, And I mean, I guess like everyone knows where we stand on this topic um, in terms of gender discrimination and double standards. Like we're not for them. Um, And I think as society, we need to assess not just sort of like the bigger forms of gender discrimination and double standards, but like we were talking about those subtle ones that exist in everyday life, Um, sort of the phrases and the words that kids hear and how that's ingrained and how you grow up to think certain things because of them. Um, But we could go on all day talking about this. Yes, we can. Um, But... I think it's more powerful to hear the experiences and the stories from a multitude of experiences. That's the purpose of this episode today. It's very special. So I just, before they start, I just want to like shout out to all of our friends. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Uh, And then without further ado, here they are. So my name is Era. In university, I studied uh, engineering. In the years since my graduation, I've worked in mechanical design, manufacturing, and the tech sector. In university, I was fortunate, and I stayed in a faculty that was relatively gender diverse. Um, so I really didn't experience a lot of double standards or gender discrimination at, in my studies, though I know that that's different for every single woman, depending on where they studied and their experiences. Uh, professionally, that's where I kind of have come up against a little bit more problems. Um, 
one thing that I've noticed a lot is that you're expected to work at a, at a very different standard from your male colleagues. Um, you need to be able to deliver more work at a higher quality, more frequently. Your comportment is held to a different standard. And you're expected to give a lot more free labor. Like you're expected to plan parties. You're expected to be that bubbly person. And you're expected to do that additional work um, in those team building morale activities that a lot of your male colleagues aren't, aren't expected to, to work on at all. And I think for me, one of the most frustrating double standards isn't one necessarily held against myself, but one that the, a lot of companies hold themselves accountable to. Um, so every March, we all see every single social media post where companies go on about how they value women in the workplace and how they want to make a workplace that is suitable for everyone to come to work and that you'll, you will be respected for who you are, your diversity, the challenges that you faced uh, as a woman in the workplace, especially in, in those fields that are relatively male dominated. And however, in my experience, when the companies are faced with a very difficult situation where a woman is speaking out openly to some of the ugliness that she's faced, um, whether that's discrimination, sexual harassment, uh, just like absolute garbage, really. Um, they don't want to stand up for her. They are more likely to hold her accountable for the actions that took place against her rather than that environment that they've created for themselves. Um, so for me, my experience, I was in a workplace where you, I was constantly faced with like just a barrage of ugly language, bullying. Uh, I was called a cunt, brought it up to my HR team, and I was the one that was blamed for it. I needed to be more understanding of where people were coming from, and it really shouldn't shouldn't be for me to to, to have <laughs> to to be bringing it to them because I should just resolve it on my own. So for me, I think that that's the biggest double standard is that organizations themselves don't necessarily want to stand up for women, but they think they are. Hi, my name is Becky and I am a 2D artist for video games and TV animation and I was asked to talk about my perspective on gender discrimination in those industries. So I wanted to start off by saying that I've been really, really lucky, knock on wood, uh, to not have many experiences firsthand in the industries, but I've definitely like seen a very large amount of my peers enter studios where they've experienced harassment and discouragement. Um, but those are not my stories and experiences to tell, so I don't want to do that. Uh, so instead I thought it would be a good idea to explain a bit of the history behind the gatekeeping that's so prevalent in these industries. Um, so it's really not surprising that like almost every industry out there, animation was a completely male-dominated field. And in the early years of animation, women were mostly seen as inkers and painters, they were in the background of the industry. So in the, like this was an extremely meticulous and important job, but even the women that were in the animation sphere weren't ever getting credit or recognition for the jobs that they were doing. Um, so at the time, like women were not seen as good storytellers or really worthy of becoming actual animators, because why spend the time and money training them when they're just going to go off and have a baby and start a family and it's just going to be time and money down the drain. And honestly, like, this isn't a surprising story. It's really, really common to hear this in every industry that started, you know, around the same time. Like, this animation is back in, like, the early 1900s, so it, it makes sense. Nobody is surprised by the fact that animation is uh, like started out as a boys club and is still very much a boys club. So 
I thought it'd be a little bit more interesting to kind of talk about how video games history has fed into it because it's a little bit different. So video games started coming out around the 70s. You know, you had Pong and Space Invaders and all that good stuff. And if you look at the history of making games, you'll see that for the most part at the beginning, there wasn't really any gender discrimination. Uh, whether you're looking at the people who were behind the scenes making the games um, or who they were marketed to. So in the beginning, you'll see like, you know, the first games like Pong and Space Invaders, they were really gender neutral in their ad campaigns. They showed women playing the games, children playing the games, boys, girls, men, women, everybody. It was almost like board games. It's a family thing. Everybody's invited to play. It's just all fun and games. But then the 80s happened and there was suddenly a shift. So basically what happened is in the early 80s, there was a recession, a, cr a crash in the video game industry where nobody was buying games anymore. So they needed to really reignite people's desire to play video games. And that's when Nintendo kind of came on the scene and they realized that it was important to shift how they were advertising games. And so instead of marketing as like family events, they decided to market them as toys. And in the 80s, it was already pretty common that toys were already segregated. These are boys toys, these are girl toys. And so they, you know, kind of looked at the data, which was sparse at best as to who was playing video games for the most part. And they kind of decided boys were the better target audience. They were going to be more engaged and they were going to be where we made money. So then you're looking at, you know, instead of the Atari and Pong systems and like arcade systems, you were looking at the NES, SNES Game Boys being marketed as toys to boys. You are not seeing any girls playing these and it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of okay, well, if we're going to market to boys, then boys are going to be who buys it. So the demographic is going to say that only boys play video games. So we're going to make stories that boys will relate to and see themselves in. And we're not going to do that for girls. And we are then going to see, you know, everything's going to be skewed around this gender. And we're going to go forward so that when it comes to entering these industries, well, We've been telling boys that it's totally fine to play games and it's built for them. So of course, men are the ones that are going to enter this industry and women are not going to feel as included or like they're going to be included. And that's where that gatekeeping comes from. So, I mean, there's a lot of exceptions to this. We've seen, you know, a lot of video games where both genders kind of play equally. If you look at the Pokemon craze, that was kind of a, a genderless phenomenon. Um, but it kind of makes sense when you think about you know, somebody plays, somebody goes to work and comes home and plays three hours of Call of Duty and then like goes on YouTube and watches other people play Call of Duty, you're going to see like people call them a gamer and they're going to refer to themselves as a gamer. But if another person comes home after work and she plays The Sims for three hours and then she goes online and she watches people play The Sims and like, you know, consumes content about The Sims, she's not considered a quote unquote gamer in most circles. And that's because games where the demographic is heavily women are not seen as equal in that sense. And it's very much still the same now. Um, you know, like the phenomena of people playing Animal Crossing during quarantine is massive, but 
you're not going to see people be like, oh, I'm such a gamer, I play a lot of Animal Crossing compared to, I'm a gamer, I play World of Warcraft. And it's, it's really unfortunate because we have this uh, boys club and we have this gatekeeping and it's obviously still very much there, but we're seeing it kind of break apart in 2020. 2020 has made an incredible amount of strides uh, in the last, like, you know, few years up till now to get more women involved in game making. The indie sphere is a lot of women making really great games, but it, I think personally, it really comes down to, you know, we have to stop treating certain games like worthier than others. So, you know, World of Warcraft is not more worthy than your mom playing Bejeweled on her phone. That is still a game that is still for her. That is still something that she can be involved in. And we also need to, you know, make it something that everybody is included in. Like, I will never forget the moment in the 90s when after playing like four different Pokemon games, Pokemon Crystal came out and they asked me just the coolest question that I had ever seen. I begged my mom to buy me the game because the game asked me, are you a boy or are you a girl? And I could say, I'm a girl. And I could finally play as me. I could finally call a character Becky and I could finally see myself in the video game. And while now we have a lot more uh, knowledge about the spectrum of gender and games are now starting to uh, be cautious of that and conscious of that. Um, it is something that like back in the 90s, the fact that somebody just asked me if I was a girl was so incredibly important. And you don't think about not only how, you know, a toy or a game has that narrative and how that affects what toys your kid plays with, but at some point it's also going to determine what careers they choose and how people treat them within those careers in this case. Um, so yeah, thanks so much. So let's see, gender discrimination and double standards. I experienced some, I won't say a lot, and I'd say like my, because I spoke Korean, like I didn't get a lot of it. I think the most I would experienced it was usually in Hongdae where they just won't let me go into clubs. Like this happened several times with several people, like didn't matter the crowd I was with, they were always like, nope, they'd never make eye contact with me while telling me I can't go in there. And then, um, yeah, I'd ask them in Korean, like, why can't I go in? And they'd get very quiet and they'd be like, well, we really don't want to say it's your skin color, but you could just see they were like, yeah, no. You just can't go in and then they'd let my friends be like they'd look at my friends and be like well you can go in and they'd be like no and then we'd walk off but yeah that happened several times and then another thing that would happen a lot is like if i was at a place of service like bank food taxi and if there was another like korean with me they'd just communicate with them even though I was like speaking Korean like I'd be like okay talk to me tell me what I need to do here and then they just look at the person next to me and just start randomly talking to them and I'm like no I'm here I understand what you're saying let's try to communicate and get through this so that it's easier for everyone and they'd be like nope happened at immigration happened a lot at banks which was probably where it like pissed me off the most because I'm like you know how long banks take in Korea to get anything done to begin with. And then they just look at the next random person next to me and start talking to them, like explaining it to them. I'm like, 
I didn't even come here with them. This is just some random person standing over my head <laughs> next in line and you're just talking to them about my situation, like what's going on here. That happened a lot. And then for gender discrimination, I honestly didn't get a lot of that. I think like I was one of the few times when like me being a man and speaking Korean actually helped a lot because like almost all the places I've worked at in Korea pretty much like took my viewpoint seriously. However, I did notice like they are pretty dismissive of like women and their views in Korea. Like my wife's a teacher there several times like she'd suggest to her Korean boss or a Korean head teacher to like how things can be improved and they just wouldn't take the suggestion seriously because well she's a woman and then like someone else would come up with a really dumb solution to the situation and they'd accept that as long as it came from a man and then like the way they'd speak to them and it's also not like dismissal after listening it's kind of just like a very offhand dismissive thing like what they have to say is not even like worth listening to at times and that was really annoying to have to hear about it and also to have to like witness it in person several times like with several of my friends actually it would happen and it's like well it is how it is they are not going to listen so that's the most i got of that and then like several times like if there was like difficulty in communicating like if there was some word in korean i won't understand they just get so pissed off i'm like just wait a minute i'll pull off my i'll pull out my translator and get it done and they'd get so annoyed by that like oh you speak korean but it's not perfect and then they'd be like all right i'll just get an english speaker for you i'm like we're almost done here i don't want to start over with this conversation like this happened several times at like immigration and it it's really annoying to have to deal with constantly like they're just always like i think that's the thing in korea is like if they get uncomfortable they'll just like clamp down and then they'll try to get like an english speaker or start over or try to pass off the problem rather than like maybe take 30 or 40 seconds to pull out a translator on their phone and like just translate it correctly for you maybe it's changed now since i've been gone like so i got there in like 2011 and then at time like 2016 rolled around like my korean was fluent enough that i didn't experience a lot of those problems but those initial years like maybe the smartphones and translators weren't that big a thing for people to use all the time so i think maybe that was part of it i remember when i got there like electronic dictionaries were the big thing but yeah it would happen a lot like rather than like take 5 minutes to like actually so not even 5 minutes like rather than take a minute to like translate a key aspect of it they just get frustrated and they just rather not deal with you and i'm like it's like a 10 second activity you know like you translate the one word and i get the rest by context it's just like a part of communication with everyone but that was i think that was like my biggest gripe about dealing in co about like dealing with things in korea or with like other koreans like they give up way too fast on foreigners and also sometimes like just the minutest of things like clearly were a surprise to them like i still remember in my university my professors would be like did you wash your hands and i'm like why would i not wash my hands like where do you think i'm coming from that i don't know like I have to wash my hands. So I was like at a baking school. So of course like washing hands was a big part of it and like my entire class would do it and somehow how he'd only ask the own he'd only ask me like the only foreigner in the class like if I'd washed my hands as like those two things are related somehow. I'm like of course I wash my hands dude like come on I've seen 
way too many Korean kids like not wash their hands after like going to the bathroom or something. And I'm like, I, I wash my hands every time I use the washroom. Dude, come on. This is just like insulting at this point. But yeah, I think over time, maybe I also got desensitized to a lot of these things that Koreans did. Because like at some point, you know, you just give up on getting mad at it. Like I was there for like nine years. Yeah, I was there. I was in Korea for like nine years. And I think the first three years were a huge adjustment, like getting used to it. And I met my wife in my second year over there, which I would like to add, like my wife is white. And I definitely notice a marked improvement in like how people would treat me when I was with her as opposed to like when I was dealing with things alone, they were like far less dismissive of me then. I was in like small town Korea in a really small town in like Jungnam. And yeah, like if I went out with her, like cafe people were a lot nicer to me. Shops were nicer as opposed to like if I had to deal with them alone. But I think like after that, like as my Korean leveled up, things definitely improved. And I'm sure like there's a part of me that just decided to ignore whatever little Koreanisms had we as we'd call it like the little things they'd pull off and we'd just be like eh, you know it's not important enough to register or spoil your day over so you just get over it like I guess acclimatization is the word I'd use there like once you get used to it it's just like oh well this is done so yeah I think those were my biggest ones they weren't like particularly about like gender based but yeah I'd say like definitely Koreans were nicer to like people with lighter skin because like I noticed it a lot I'd be treated better when I was out with my wife and then a lot of like assumptions about language skills like if you're not fluent at the language they'd immediately be like oh I don't want to waste a lot of time dealing with you and then like the usual Hongdae crap of not being allowed into clubs but I think I'm not the only one who's experienced that Hongdae is pretty famous for no foreigners bar so yeah that's it bye Hello, my name is Anna. Um, I am currently living in Seoul as a student, but I've been teaching kindergarten here for the past two years. Um, I have also lived in Shanghai, Chicago, and New York. Um, and I am a cisgender straight woman, so I'm kind of going to be talking about my dating experiences from that perspective. Um, when I was first thinking about what I would want to say on this podcast, I was kind of approaching it from a cultural perspective. Like, what are the differences in gender dynamics, culturally speaking, in these different places that I've lived? But when I, when I came to think about it, I felt that the most salient part was international, I guess, um... Which was kind of, I, it came down to kind of two things for me. And one was like safety and respect is a big one. What I have found to be the case is that men, I've personally, I've only dated uh, cisgender straight men. So coming again from that perspective, are remarkably unaware of their own privilege. Generally speaking, of course, that doesn't apply to everyone, but... Um, in terms of like first dates, because these guys don't get second dates, um, I've been on so many dates where these men are just unaware of the privilege that they have and the power that they have. And that can leave me as a not very strong, not very big, not very imposing woman, um, in a very scary position. 
And what I mean by that is things like, for example, uh, walking me home. When I say that I don't want you to walk me home, it means that I don't want you to walk me home. There's no two ways about it. Walking me home, holding my hand, sharing whatever food. It's like when I say that I don't want to do it, it means I do not want to do it. And from the perspective of, I guess, like politeness, I understand if you offer, for example, if a man offers to walk me home and I say, oh, no, 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 thanks. That's that's okay. I understand if he offers one more time just to show that it was an earnest offer, that he wasn't doing it just to be polite. If one more time he just says, no, truly, I'm happy to walk you home if you'd like me to. One more time I politely say, no, thank you. I'm really good. That's when he needs to drop it. So many men do not. They will keep pushing. They will keep insisting. And at that point, it's kind of like there's mentally, I see these two trajectories. One of them is just like, he's socially inept. He doesn't get what's going on here. He's clueless and won't take no for an answer because of that, which still isn't acceptable. And then the other path is like, there are scary intentions at play here. And I don't, I don't like that. And then if it is the latter, that he has bad intentions, that there are nefarious reasons as to why he's insisting on walking me home after I've made it clear that I don't want him to, that's when it starts to get really scary. Because a woman should not have to rudely or loudly or belligerently refuse a man for that refusal to be taken seriously. Me politely, quietly, gently saying no thank you should be taken as seriously as me kneeing you in the balls and slapping you and telling you no. Like, there should be no reason that I need to escalate to such a level for you to take me seriously. And the scary part then is that if this guy is actually a problem, if I do have reason to be worried, and I do make my intentions more clear, and I do assert my boundaries in a more robust way, will that make him mad? If he's already so uh, impervious to my refusal and the assertion of my boundaries, what will that do? If he was already potentially going to do something that I didn't want him to, why would why would he respect my boundary just because I assert it more loudly? Will that make him angry? Will he then do something sooner to hurt me? Those are the kind of thoughts that go through my mind. And almost as like a litmus test and kind of as a preventative measure, um, I will often tell guys about that, like on a first date, when we're meeting in public preemptively, way before there would be any discussion of him walking me home. Like, oh yeah, it's so crazy. You know, I've been on so many dates with these guys where they like don't see how scary it would be to insist that you walk a girl home. Ha ha ha, isn't that wild? And an astonishing number of guys are like, oh my God, yeah, I've I've never even thought about that before. And that's where the privilege really kicks in. That I don't think these are men who want to make women uncomfortable. I don't think they're men who would set out with that intention but the fact that they've never even thought about all right I'm bigger than her I'm stronger than her which of course is not always the case women can be bigger than men women can be stronger than men but 
generally speaking, and specifically in my case, because I'm a pretty small, pretty weak (laughs) person, um, at the end of the day, it's like if the vast majority of guys that I've ever been on a date with, if they wanted to hurt me, they could. And, or, you know, commit whatever act of violence they could. I physically wouldn't be able to stop it. And the fact is that they've never had to put themselves in that situation. They've never had to ask themselves, what would happen if these roles were reversed? Because at the end of the day, if it's me insisting that I walk him home and I don't take no for an answer and I follow him home, if I try to force myself on him, physically he can stop me. That's not a concern. And they've never taken the extra moment to extend themselves to the position of someone with less power, to the position of someone with less privilege, that I think the world would be a much better place if in terms of dating, those kinds of privileges, that kind of power dynamic was thought about. And if more people were willing to make concessions to even that playing field and to acknowledge whatever position of power, whether that's socially, financially, physically, and then make concessions to give the other person what they need and to give them the voice that they deserve. Um, That was pretty long-winded. The second one, this is more of a shorter addendum, um, was that with being a kindergarten teacher, that is a job that really plays into gender stereotypes. You know, I'm a young woman, Um, that's a very, like, heteronormative, stereotypically, you know, women's role. And that's brought out a lot of ugliness in ugly people (laughs) that I may not have seen otherwise. Um, what I find is that I'm, I'm certainly not someone who's willing to compromise or dumb myself down, um when I'm dating and I think I've intimidated a lot of dudes with fragile egos um because (laughs) they see that like yeah I'm a kindergarten teacher but that doesn't mean that I'm like sitting around you know drawing stick figures and making spaghetti necklaces all day like I have an intellect I'm very independent and I'm not someone that they would be able to control and I've had a lot of guys take jabs at me for my being a kindergarten teacher and belittle me and demean me for it and I don't know that they even realize that that's what they're doing um but often when like potential dates or first dates find out that I'm a kindergarten teacher they'll say like oh you're so you're a glorified babysitter oh so you're basically a nanny things like that and the issues here are twofold A is that babysitters, nannies, caretakers don't need to be glorified. Their job is already hard enough and already deserves an immense amount of respect. And the second issue is that no, I'm not. That's not my job. That's why there there are different titles. It's not the same thing. And I, I just wonder, that's like, you know, for him, if he's whatever, like a marketing executive if I'm like oh yeah so you're basically a graphic designer you're like a glorified graphic designer Hmm? no like and it's it's so rude 
so deeply rude to say that anyone's job is a glorified anything. And the rudeness, again, is twofold because not only are you disrespecting their job and their profession, you're disrespecting whatever profession you just implied needed to be glorified. It's, I don't know, it's such a deeply distasteful thing to say. Um, And I think there's also a perception that teaching and especially working in our early childhood education isn't hard that you're just like sitting around singing songs all day having fun there are so many things that I love about being a kindergarten teacher very genuinely it's hard work despite all the stuff that I love about it it's super hard it's not easy it requires a lot of work and there was one instance where I was on a date with a guy. He did not get a second date. And he knew that I was a kindergarten teacher. I asked him what he did. He told me he worked in finance. And I know I have a lot of friends who work in finance. I know how hard they work. I know it can be really demanding and require a lot of long hours. So I said to him, oh, wow, you must work really hard at that job. And showing him like respect and deference. Wow, you must work really hard. And he looked at me and he said, harder than you. And I was absolutely floored. I was speechless. And the crazy thing was that he asked me on a second date. It's not like he just hated my company and he wanted to be mean just because he wasn't having a good time. He was, he continued to request my time and my company. And to that, that just, I still am absolutely boggled by that. I don't know what was up, but to me, it's it's doubly crazy that this man would demean me and my work, my profession in such a way and still have the gall to think that there would even be a chance that I would want to spend my time on him. I don't know. That was crazy. Um, I think I said crazy like five times in that last sentence. I still can't. It still doesn't add up to me. I don't know. Um, but I, I think... In conclusion, in summary, um, what has stood out to me in the negative sector of my dating experience is how ready men are to belittle me, to demean me, and to flagrantly disrespect my boundaries. That's, I mean, and this is like to say nothing of the wonderful men that I've met. There are lots of great guys out there, um... But this this was just, you know, to focus on the the um, the bummer aspect of dating. But yeah, I think what it comes down to is like the worst of the worst has really just been the readiness with which so many men have uh, flagrantly and with flying colors um, disrespected both me and the boundaries that I have set with them. Um, on that note, <laughs> thank you for listening. Um, I don't know if that was at all educational, but I hope it did someone some good. Um, And at the very least, I hope that someone was able to relate to it. (laughs) All right. Cheers. And that's it. Thank you for listening to our episode today. And we hope that these stories touched you in some way. The goal was to show that gender discrimination exists across national and industrial boundaries and affects more people than you might expect. Hopefully, if you weren't already, your eyes are now open to the difficulties that many women face every day. Only when we acknowledge the problem can we find the solution.
And if you've had a similar experience to any of the stories shared today, or you have your own stories about gender discrimination or double standards, share them in the comments section of this podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's special episode. All right. Catch you next time. Bye. That's it for today, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in. And as always, please support this work by subscribing and donating to our cause at www.teamgetoveryit.com. Donors get access to specific content like stickers, t-shirts, and postcards from our journey. You can donate for as little as $5 and the benefits build from there. Go to our website for more information. Or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Team Get Over It. Thanks for listening. And catch us next time on Get Over It.